Welcome back to the Pacific Century, a Hoover Institution podcast on China, America, the Indo-Pacific, and the fate of the 21st century. I'm Misha Oslin, a fellow at the Hoover Institution, and today my co-host John Yu is unfortunately doing his teaching duties at the University of Berkeley and so is unable to join us, and he is missing once again a great guest. We are very happy to have Bonnie Glazer join the Pacific Century today. Those of you who work on China are undoubtedly familiar with Bonnie's work. Bonnie is currently the director of the Asia program at the German Marshall Fund of the United States. If you've been in D.C. for a while, you know that previously she was the senior advisor for Asia and the director of the China Power Project at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. Uh, she also was a consultant for various U.S. government departments and offices. She's published widely, and she is an inveterate con- conference goer showing up around the world talking about China's foreign and security policies, which is what we are going to talk to Bonnie today about. So, Bonnie, welcome to the Pacific Century. Thank you for having me, Misha. Well, it's 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 great to to have you um, in in part because you are in a new venture at the German Marshall Fund after a long time at CSIS, and so your remit now uh, extends out even more to Europe than it did before. You're you're looking at China from a couple of different angles, which uh, I think Washington could benefit, and all of us could benefit from understanding foreign views. But I think the the, the first question I want to start off with is is the big one you know the the big 30,000 foot question that that will allow you to sort of bring us down into the weeds which is it's really popular today to talk about a new cold war you've been looking at china us relations for a few decades now are we in a cold war uh, is china's foreign and security policy in a competitive and adversarial relationship with that of the united states or or is this a cooperative relationship well i think whether or not it's a cooperative relationship is a very different question, of course, than whether we are in a Cold War. So uh, I I will start by saying that if you use the frame of the U.S.-Soviet Cold War uh, and apply that to China, then I think you will find there's more differences than similarities, although there are some similarities that should not be completely ignored. Uh, The ideological component of the uh, U.S.-Soviet Cold War, which was so prominent, uh, has taken on greater significance in the U.S.-China relationship and could become more prominent in the future. Uh, We saw Xi Jinping very early on in his tenure uh, give a speech in which he said that socialism will prevail over capitalism uh, in the 17th Um, uh, excuse me, in the 19th Party Congress in uh, October of 2017, uh, Xi Jinping did talk about uh, China's development path being an option for other countries, although he later denied that he was trying to export a Chinese model. But the Chinese continue to talk about their governance model and how superior it is to the governance models being used by uh, Western uh, countries. Uh, of course, uh, the there are uh, great people-to-people exchanges and massive trade. Now, 
upwards of $600 billion a year between uh, the United States and China. So, of course, that's very different than the U.S.-Soviet Cold War. Uh, But nevertheless, there probably are some lessons that could be learned. So we shouldn't completely throw out that, uh, that frame, especially since we're now looking at reports about how China is building building several hundred uh, silos for potentially for new ICBMs, uh, conducting these hypersonic missile tech tests of uh, potentially nuclear-capable vehicles, and more and more interest in bringing China into an arms control framework, which we've never had uh, with China. And once again, the only model we really have had is with the former Soviet Union. So one could consider uh, how we could have talks with China, um, not dissimilar actually to what we're having with Russia today uh, on strategic stability uh, more broadly. So we are, I'm reluctant to say we are in a Cold War, uh, but I, I, I also don't rule out that we could be seeing a new version of a very different Cold War emerging between uh, the United States and China. So in your view, since you've, you've looked at um, foreign and security policy for a long time in China, and of course, you've seen it uh, through a progression of, of different leaders, Xi Jinping today, uh, before him, Hu Jintao, before him, Jiang Zemin, back to Deng Xiaoping. Um, how ideological do you see China's foreign and security policy? Is it is it driven by ideology? Is it more pragmatic? How, in other words, should policymakers in the United States and the West, and again, you deal with Europe a lot now, so Europe, how should they understand the drivers of, of Chinese foreign and security policy? We, we don't think much about ideology since the end of the Cold War, should we? Well, I do think that China is is ideological, uh, but its foreign policy is not driven primarily by ideological uh, objectives. And the the Chinese want relations with countries to serve China's interests. Uh, that may mean. Uh, in ensuring that uh, these countries uh, support that Taiwan is part of China, uh, that they don't challenge uh, Chinese interests in other areas, such as uh, supporting other countries in a territorial dispute with China. They want countries to uh, support China at the United Nations (laughs) um, to take on positive narratives uh, about China. Uh, but I, I, I don't think there is a specific ideology that China is challenging. Most importantly, uh, China wants other countries to respect China's own uh, model of, of development uh, and respect China as an emerging superpower. After all, a superpower is not defined solely by a country's uh, economic, uh, military, uh, even, even soft power. It is in part determined by the perception of countries around the world. So other countries have to say, aha, yes, China has arrived. It is now a superpower. And China wants respect from countries around the world. But I do think that uh, getting support 
for China's authoritarian system, its techniques, its practices, is also part of what China is trying to achieve. Now, these are, of course, inexplicably intertwined, uh, inextricably intertwined with the uh, techniques themselves, the companies, the the, the commercial benefits that uh, China is getting from its companies like Huawei and ZTE or Hikvision uh, promoting uh, surveillance uh, technology abroad. But once again, uh, supporting buying from Chinese companies, making those Chinese companies in the top 100 in the world is part of respecting China. Let me ask you a, a slightly different take on the, the driver's question, because I think it's it's very important in, in the sense that we are in a period of reassessing our policy towards China, but I think reassessing China itself, with the People's Republic reassessing its policies, the assumptions we made for a very long time about its development have some have come to fruition and others have not. Um, but when you, you look at drivers, and before I asked you about ideology, um, to look at it a little bit more neutrally, so to speak, in, in the sense of China acting as a state, uh, you know, from sort of a realist paradigm, as all other states act in the system. Do you think its foreign policy, its security policy is primarily defensive in orientation? Um, or or is it, uh, again, what we would what we had hoped would be something that's more, more cooperative. And in other words, does how how does it see itself relating to the world? Well, China sees most of its own foreign policy activity as defensive. Increasingly, the rest of the world uh, sees that China's foreign policy assertiveness is goes beyond uh, simple defense of uh, of China's own interest. Uh, so it really depends on on where 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 you sit. Uh, I think that the, the the Chinese, for example, when they started building islands in the South China Sea, uh, would defend that by saying that Vietnam actually uh, had many more holdings of these uh, reefs and rocks uh, in, in the South China Sea, uh, as particularly in the Spratleys, China only had these uh, seven very, very small islets. Uh, and so they built them out. And they made military bases uh, and, and they can probably argue that they feared that other countries like the United States might actually block China's sea lanes of communication uh, in a crisis. So uh, China has to be able to have the capability to prevent the U.S. Navy from sailing close to, to China. Indeed, we've seen over the last decade China acquire this vast array of anti-access area denial capabilities, uh, first to impose costs on an intervening U.S. or other foreign force within the first uh, island chain, and now increasingly extending outwards into the second island chain, as we know that Chinese missiles can range uh, all the way to to Guam. And and so I, I think that, yes, the Chinese would say that they are just pursuing a very defensive policy. But increasingly, I think it looks to other countries like uh, China is is much more ambitious uh, that it 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 wants to be uh, the hegemon of the region. It wants to dominate the region, set the rules. Uh, of the region, uh, the rejection of the uh, 2016 ruling, for example, uh, by the arbitral tribunal that was uh, formulated uh, under the 
um, it was it was formed under the Convention on the Law of the Sea in response to the the Philippines case that had been filed uh, in 2013. I, that's an, an example of China just saying, "Well, we reject your rules. We're going to uh, we're going to set our own." And uh, China has not uh, joined um, any regional or global efforts to provide uh, uh, economic assistance together with the rest of the world. Instead, it wants to do it through its old Belt and Road Initiative um, and and set technology and industrial standards uh, at the same time. Uh, And and so I I think that China increasingly does want to insert its own norms uh, into uh, the international system. Uh, And I think that democracies should be worried about that. Why should we worry about their norms? Meaning, can we live with their norms? What 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 is what is so threatening about the Chinese norms? Since you've you've raised, and I think that's a really important point. Well, if you if you have a definition of human rights that emphasizes solely people's standard of living and basically their 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 economic status, but you deny them any kinds of freedoms, and 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 China's definition has been pushing at the UN does not support the freedom of the individual. It's it, it it's really the the state, and 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 as I said, the 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 economic well being of of people. And, and I don't deny that should be part of a definition of human rights. But I, I, I believe that there have long been universal uh, definitions at, at the United Nations of, of the right of people uh, to uh, have the um, uh, ability to say what they think, to gather, uh, to, to protest peacefully. Uh, certainly democracies around the world uh, give individuals uh, the right to have such freedoms uh, to speak out, to to publish their views, to have labor unions. I mean, it, the, the, this has an impact on so many things. China's now put in a bid to join the um, uh, CPTPP, uh, which has a, a a a chapter, as I understand it, on on, on labor. And it's a requirement to allow independent labor unions. Uh, China will not allow the establishment of labor unions. Right. But is this, but I guess what I'm, what I'm interested in, since you, you talked about its attempt um, to, uh, you know, is, is it trying to, we're not talking about changing China, right? We're talking about China uh, attempting to change us. So, uh, is it trying to get countries to accept these more illiberal norms? And you mentioned what was interesting to me is that you mentioned, you know, we think of international institutions set up after 1945 and they they run on these obviously liberal principles. And you mentioned China's attempts to to in essence suborn these international institutions or change them. So um, is is that what it's trying to do? I mean, it, it certainly can't get the United States to change how we treat labor unions or individuals. So what's what's the what's the danger in terms of China um, as it, as it attempts to get its its norms accepted by international bodies, which really don't change what we do internally? 
Well, I do think that having those those norms written into resolutions in the United Nations is a danger to the rest of the world. And I also think that uh, promoting China's authoritarian practices uh, around the world does encourage other countries uh, to more readily adopt uh, China's norms and illiberal values uh, rather than those of the West. So uh, there is a competition between systems here, whether we want to admit it or not. And it's fascinating to me that when uh, Xi Jinping first came to power, he talked about China participating in global governance reform. And then a few years later, he changed that verb. He said that China will guide global governance reform. And then in June of 2018, he said China will lead global governance reform. So this is an ambitious leader in China that wants to impose his views on the rest of the world. If we look at Chinese governance at home, which has become increasingly repressive and authoritarian, um, and this is not just in places like Xinjiang, uh, but completely intolerant of uh, many different types of people, the the, the ethnic groups, um, in some cases, feminists, um, just, uh, you know, uh, they're intolerant of uh, people who are LGBTQ. So, could we really envision that China would push a different form of governance outside its borders than inside its borders? That makes no sense to me. So we should be worried about China promoting global governance reform when we look at the system that it has in place in, within its own borders. I think this this point you made about the competition of systems is is critical. It's something that you know, historically, we were not envisioning because we thought that that with the Washington consensus idea and the like, that China would actually begin to norm towards us what we used to call convergence. And today we're much more focused on divergence. So as you uh, have expressed it in this this attempt now to expand its norms beyond its border, uh, what are some of the key methods that it is using. One we've we've talked about, we've talked about international institutions. Another one you mentioned earlier, and I wanted to ask you about is the one belt, one road. How seriously should we take one belt, one road? A lot of people say, look, it, it's over-promising and under-delivering. It's, it's uh, mired in debt. It still uh, doesn't do the things that it promised. So uh, what's, what's the real story? And, and is that a vehicle for Beijing to introduce some of these norms into countries throughout Eurasia and beyond? Well, first, let me say, I hope you'll invite my former colleague, John Hillman, who's just published a, a terrific book on uh, the, the the digital efforts that China is pushing uh, through the Belt and Road. But it does, does really great work uh, in this area. Now, I would just say that I think the Belt and Road was a very, very ambitious uh, uh, foreign policy, sort of flagship policy for uh, for Xi Jinping. I don't think it has achieved everything that they hoped it would. They're not going to abandon it, uh, but they have uh, stumbled in some places where countries have found that they are mired under debt or there have been projects that have not been high quality. Uh, and in many cases, uh, China has brought in its own workers and its own practices, and countries haven't really benefited. But that's not true in 100% of the cases. There, there are some successes. I, I think um, one example uh, might be the Piraeus port in, in Greece, which has seen a significant increase in um, port activity since, uh, since it was expanded. 
Uh, but there are great risks involved, not only for those countries that take on the debt, uh, but uh, they also for, uh, I think, the rest of the world, if China's moving into ports where they have 90, they're invested in 95 ports now around the world. And some of these, not all, but some of them will be dual use bases for Chinese ships. Uh, we may see Cambodia become the second military base for China uh, abroad. The first one, of course, is in Djibouti. Um, so I think, yes, China has greater ambitions. But the bottom line is that uh, these countries need infrastructure, and there are not many other alternatives. So uh, there are uh, cases in which Japan has provided uh, support for, uh, for, for countries that want to build infrastructure. The United States is trying to get into that game. We started thinking about how to do this in the Trump administration. We've continued working on it in the Biden administration. But I don't see that we've produced a whole lot of uh, successful projects so far. So uh, we, we need to do a better job. We just need to offer alternatives because actually not all countries want to take these loans uh, from China. They would like to bring in outside countries. They themselves don't want to be too dependent uh, on China. They would rather balance uh, against China. But if China's money is out there and that's the only option, then they're, they're going to take it. Well, you, you, uh, mentioned Greece, and uh, there was uh, an instance uh, a number of years ago, I'm forgetting the exact year, uh, as you mentioned, China has become the port operator for the Piraeus, and, and Greece uh, basically blocked an EU uh, human rights statement on Uyghurs uh, and China's treatment of Uyghurs. So are these, is one of the dangers that these loans are coming with strings attached, that that China's uh, aid is forcing uh, liberal nations to change their foreign policy and be supportive of these illiberal ends. Well, that's exactly right. Um, there, there are no explicit strings attached, but countries know that uh, they should support China if they are taking their money uh, or they are getting other benefits from China. They fear the consequences of challenging China. Mm -hmm. So they, they don't want to get into a situation like, um, uh, for example, the Philippines when it uh, pushed back against China in Scarborough Shoal. And then, of course, after it filed that case in the, uh, in the South China Sea to, to uh, challenge the China's nine-dash line. Uh, the the Chinese stopped importing their their bananas, said they were infested and other tropical fruits, and they stopped sending tourists to the Philippines. Uh, we, we know now that China has done this against um, over a dozen uh, countries, ranging from Norway to Mongolia to Japan and Australia. South Korea, and now Australia, <laughs> which uh, has been the target of a boycott of more than two dozen products, uh, because the Chinese don't like the fact that Australia has um, called for an independent investigation into the origins of COVID-19. Indeed, that was seen and still is by Beijing as a uh, really a threat 
to the legitimacy of the Chinese Communist Party. Uh, so they are using an example of Australia to show the rest of the world how they too can be punished if they challenge Chinese interests. So this is very widespread. And, and, and I do think that when countries uh, uh, take Chinese money, uh, that they feel that they have fewer options when it, when it comes to China. We can look today maybe at Malaysia, uh, mm -hmm. which is getting Chinese loans. And very quickly, when AUKUS was announced, uh, the Malaysians came out and said, maybe this isn't such a good idea uh, to have uh, you know, nuclear-powered submarines that might be sailing in the South China Sea. And Malaysia's defense minister made a visit uh, to China. So I, I, I think that uh, countries that see that uh, their, their bread is being buttered in Beijing are reluctant to challenge China. Beijing buttered bread. That's going to be our new, it's going to be our new slogan here. So you, you also spend a great deal of time looking at Taiwan. You've, you've, you've looked a lot at Taiwan and, and I know it was related to some of your work at CSIS on the power project. How worried are you uh, about the future of Taiwan? I mean, basically, people are saying China's getting ready to invade. What what do you see is happening? Well, I'm concerned about the coercion that's being used against uh, Taiwan, uh, the, the pressure, which is diplomatic and military pressure. Uh, I would point out that the economic pressure against Taiwan has actually been fairly limited, in part because uh, pressuring Taiwan economically uh, would would just be shooting itself in the foot. China is so interdependent with, with Taiwan that it would suffer greatly. So they have really not gone very deeply into the into their economic pockets to, to pull out coercive measures against, against Taiwan. But um, I, I really think that uh, if you examine everything that Xi Jinping has said uh, on Taiwan. And, and it's actually quite a limited number of statements and speeches he's given since he came to power. You will find very consistent um, set of messaging that, that he is, is giving. And, and in my view, you can detect perhaps a degree of impatience, but not what I would say is urgency to unify Taiwan uh, with China. And I draw that, that, that distinction. So Xi Jinping has said uh, that uh, the, the, the policy toward Taiwan is uh, peaceful development across the Taiwan Strait. Interestingly, he inherited that from Hu Jintao. So with all of the assertiveness we've seen against India, for example, and the operations in the South China Sea and pressure on Japan, uh, this policy against Taiwan, the policy guideline is the same. Uh, Xi Jinping continues to talk about peaceful reunification. Indeed, just a few weeks ago in his uh, speech marking the 110th anniversary of the founding of uh, the Republic of China the, in 1911, he referred again to the goal being peaceful reunification. He said it again in July in the speech marking the 100th anniversary of the founding of the Chinese Communist Party. And, and so what Xi Jinping is saying is, is it's a historical inevitability to unify Taiwan with the motherland, as they say, um, and that uh, ultimately 
uh, uh, Taiwan will 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 have to give in. Uh, and he, the one new thing that he has said is that it is that unification is a requirement for national rejuvenation. And let's remember that Xi Jinping did say um, in 2017 at the 19th Party Congress that uh, national rejuvenation now has a, a timeline. It, it, it should be achieved by 2049. So this has led some people to think that there might now be a deadline uh, for reunifying Taiwan with China. Xi Jinping is not going to be uh, in power in um, in in 2049. I mean, he's now uh, 68, so he he will get a third term next year at the 20th Party Congress. I think he might even have another uh, fourth term. That would put him in power for another 10 years. That doesn't even get us to 2035. And China could always sort of change the narrative, but I don't sense the urgency. You know, the the most the, when I use the term impatience, what what I hear Xi Jinping say. He said this twice, that China shouldn't pass down the problems between Taiwan and the mainland to from one generation to the next. I mean, that's to me about how urgent he's he's gotten. It just to me, it doesn't it doesn't sound urgent. So uh, China is intimidating Taiwan. The the urgency the only priority that where there is urgency is to deter Taiwan independence. And Taiwan is actually not, in my view, posing a threat of independence. Taiwan has 15 tiny countries in the world that recognize it as the Republic of China, an independent sovereign state. Uh, the United States is certainly supporting Taiwan more, but it is not considering uh, breaking diplomatic ties with the PRC and establishing them with the Republic of China on Taiwan. So I, I just think that um, particularly under this president in Taiwan, uh, Tsai Ing-wen is very cautious and prudent. Uh, she's preserving her definition of the status quo, not pushing for uh, independence. So China has already achieved this goal of deterring independence. And, and promoting unification is a longer term objective. It, it is not one that China will give up and they will not take use of force off the table. But just because they are flying large numbers of aircraft in uh, airspace, and it's not Taiwan's territorial airspace, right? This is an air defense identification zone, which is this sort of arbitrary area that some countries uh, will set up these agencies and say, oh, we have some national security interests in, these, in, in this particular area of airspace. Like China uh, has done in the South China Sea. Exactly. And mm -hmm. China did this in the East China Sea. They set up an ADIS uh, in, in, in the East China Sea in 2013. Um, but I think only about 20 countries in the world or so have, uh, have these air defense identifications on. So China is not, is not flying over Taiwan. They're not even flying within its territorial airspace that extends 12 nautical miles out from Taiwan. So they're, they're training their pilots their pilots, they are, are they're stressing the um, uh, the military in in Taiwan. Uh, they are forcing it to um, uh, to maintain their aircraft and scramble more frequently, uh, and, and and they are trying to send a signal and a warning 
to not challenge Chinese interests. This signal is intended for us here in Washington, too, by the way, not just for Taiwan. So but, let me, but let, let me just say one more mm-hmm. thing on this issue before I let you go back and probe further, and that is that we have to understand what the cost-benefit uh, analysis is for Xi Jinping. And the risks are very high. The risks of using force against Taiwan are, A, potential failure, where mm-hmm. uh, the, the CCP legitimacy could be negatively affected. Xi Jinping's status could actually be affected. They could end up with a in a major war with the United States, which would derail their entire national rejuvenation agenda. And it might end up causing a coalition of countries to actually align against China, because then China would have used force for the first time since 1979. And many other countries would say, oh, now China's emboldened to use force against us too. So I think that the costs are very high for Xi Jinping, and I just don't see the necessity to get it done now. So you disagree then with the assessments of the Indo-PACOM commanders, uh, Admiral, former one Admiral Davidson, who testified he saw a, a time frame of something like six to seven years, and the current commander, the new commander, uh, Admiral Aquilino, who said he saw it as within five years. You don't, you don't think what you said is 2049, according to Xi Jinping, that's 28 years. So the Chinese have a 28 year time frame, And so the American five year time frame, we don't have to be concerned is what you're saying. Let's be careful not to say that, that, that there is an American uh, time frame, mm-hmm. because that is coming out of Indo-PACOM, and it is based exclusively on a capabilities-based assessment that mm-hmm. we believe the PLA will have the capability to seize and control Taiwan within the next six years. But I would urge you to read General Milley's testimony, which he made after Admiral Phil Davidson and Admiral Aquilino, in which he said, we have to take into account intentions and capabilities. And he said that he doesn't believe that Beijing has the near-term intention to use force against Taiwan. And you think that's more, that you think that's an accurate assessment? I do. And I believe it is it is critically important to not look at this exclusively through the lens of defense capabilities, that we have to look at the broader geopolitical context. So last question, uh, as we are getting near the end of our time, which which circles directly into the U.S. Um, does U.S., do we, Washington, you know, the United States government have the right China policy? And 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 by extension, the right Taiwan policy, obviously, much greater uh, support, both from the Trump and Biden administrations that that can cause more tensions. Uh, uh, the Trump administration changing China policy, some would say rather dramatically uh, with with the tariffs uh, and uh, and and the pushback, uh, everything that that has been you know rehashed fairly often. What, what's your take? Do we have it right? And if not, what do we have to do? I think we're getting there. We're moving in the right direction. And I do think that the Trump administration put the United States on the right trajectory. Uh, There was a a really urgent need to assess the challenges and threats that China poses to the United States, to, to our allies, to democracy around the world. And then begin to formulate some policies, um, not only to push back against China, but perhaps even more importantly, to protect ourselves and make our society and and our allies um, as societies more resilient uh, to work with them in, in coalitions. And 
So I think that the Trump administration started that. And of course, sometimes we go from a Republican to a Democratic administration or vice versa, and uh, uh, new presidents will come in and, and start over from, from scratch. In this case, the Biden administration, I think, inherited a, a, an assessment of China that they also believed was accurate. And then they reviewed the policies the Trump administration had put in, in place and found that most of them are what they want to follow as well. And so they are building on the policies that they inherited. There's been a very small number of cases where they have uh, moved backwards. Um, I think I could cite, for example, the um, uh, efforts that had been taken to shut down maybe TikTok and WeChat uh, as, as may, maybe uh, one area that they decided to go in a different direction. So uh, we do see, I think, significant um, progress. They have added to that, uh, I think, building our alliances, strengthening them in ways that are indispensable because the United States cannot manage uh, China on its own. And, and so I think we are beginning to work in very important ways uh, now with Japan uh, in uh, talking about the de defense of, of Taiwan and what we can do together. Uh, this is an issue that is now, I think, on the agenda with Australia. Uh, we are building new security architecture in the region. Uh, the Quad was resuscitated by the Trump administration, but it is now um, uh, being built out further by the Biden administration. And I think AUKUS is another example of a sort of nascent uh, new security architecture in the region. So these are all good efforts. Um, where, where are we falling short? I, I would say we haven't yet done enough on uh, technology. That's been an area where we're moving too slowly. Um, and I know we had a very good session of the Trade and Technology Council with the EU. We've created nine working groups. We have a lot of ambitions, but we just need to move more quickly so that we prevent um, advanced technology from falling into the hands uh, of the PLA as they continue to surprise us and what they are able to do, perhaps in part doing uh, some, making some of these advancements by themselves, but undoubtedly they are getting access either legally or surreptitiously, covertly from uh, from other, other countries or uh, or, or companies. So I think we have to, we just have to accelerate what, what we're doing in that area. We should also consider uh, what um, the outbound um, investment is going into China. And again, we need to do that with, with our allies and partners. We're, we're working on export controls and, and, and that's a good thing. So those are areas where um, we're already doing some work. The area where we are weakest in is certainly uh, trade. And I think the community in Washington was quite disappointed with uh, U.S. Trade Representative Catherine Tai's speech, where uh, she is not given a clear direction for where we are going with China. Uh, she uh, it, it said there, there, there won't be a phase two. They're not considering a Section 301 action. Uh, they're just going to go talk to the Chinese and see what they have to say. Um, and encourage them to uh, to fulfill the commitments they made under the phase one deal, uh, not taking off the tariffs, not imposing new ones. I think everybody listened to that speech and said, but but. What, what, what's our what's our strategy? And the problem there, I think, is that the administration doesn't have a broader trade policy. Um, are, we are watching uh, uh, trade agreements over the last three, three few years, uh, 
uh, RCEP, um, CPTPP, the United States is not a member of any of them. There's talk about a digital economy uh, or digital trade agreement, but we have not seen anything concrete. So what is the trade policy overall of the administration? Then how does that fit into our China uh, strategy? And the last thing that I'll say is that I really am looking forward to seeing uh, the Indo-Pacific strategy when it comes out, how the, the China policy and China strategy fits into that. But I also want to hear Biden administration officials tell us what the objective is of our China strategy. Uh, that should be very clearly stated. Uh, I don't think it's going to be uh, that we seek to overthrow the Chinese Communist Party, nor should it be, but there were people in the prior administration who thought that's what it should be. Uh, but is it that we want to uh, uh, change Xi Jinping's calculus and we want China to change its objectionable behavior, um, specific policies? Um, uh, is it that we want uh, China to uh, just abide by international law, international rules? Uh, what What is it that is the goal of, of our strategy? And I've heard many Biden administration officials say we can't really change Chinese practices. So we just have to defend ourselves and make ourselves more resilient. And if that is really what the strategy is, well, I'd like to know that too. Well, I think that's a great point. It's it's the fundamental point, right? What what do we want to see at the end? And you can't have a strategy without it. And you you certainly can't have tactics without it. So I think raising that is uh is exactly the point, both to end the podcast, but also where we should be starting. Uh, which is what do we want to do? Um, you know, next time I hope uh, we're, we're out of time today, but next time I hope we can have you come back after you've been able to travel to Europe and take up your various German Marshall Fund duties in Europe and all of the offices there. Have you come back and talk about Europe and, and talk about the European view? Uh, you'll be working with European scholars. It'll be very interesting to to understand how they're grappling with this, as we know the UK is and France and Germany and, and everyone. So hopefully you'll come back. But this has been a, a just a great conversation covering an enormous amount of territory. So again, we've been talking with Bonnie Glazer, who directs the Asia Studies programs at the German Marshall Fund. Bonnie, thanks for joining the Pacific Century. Thanks for having me, Misha. So on behalf of John Yu, once again, I am Misha Oslin for the Hoover Institution of Pacific Century, and we'll see you next time. This podcast is a production of the Hoover Institution, where we advance ideas that define a free society and improve the human condition. For more information about our work or to listen to more of our podcasts or watch our videos, please visit hoover.org.